Well, good morning. So glad you are here at Grace Community Church, chosen to worship with us this morning, worship this Lord whose glory fills heaven and earth. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church, and to you we say welcome. Look, there are a lot of faces that are relatively new or brand new to me, so Grace folks, make sure you find those faces after the service, and don't bring them to me and say, is this one of the faces you're talking about? Just, just go up to them and say, hey, good to have you here. Find out a little bit about them if you would. Well, if you just saw what flashed on the screen, you know what's coming. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Alca Indians of Ecuador in the mid-1950s. Uh, Elliot, along with four other companions, uh, gave their lives for the gospel as they made contact with the people that they desperately wanted to tell about Jesus. Elliot and all those who were with him knew of the dangers of their mission and were prepared to die for the truth of the gospel. They had given their hearts to Jesus many years before that fateful day of January 8, 1956. In October of 1949, Elliot had written in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Now, look, this is not uh, the words of Scripture, but these are words that bear repeating from generation to generation. A good word. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's a good word. It's not the best word, but these words are absolutely based on the best word, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, we learned a few weeks ago, is a foreign language that must be reviewed constantly if we're to maintain our grip on it, or really better, if the gospel is going to retain its grip on us we need to be reviewing it over and over and over the book of hebrews reminds us that the natural language for man is law and law doesn't always look like you think it will you may think that's strange with the level of of decadence and corruption in the world but most people believe in a higher power of some sort and they're trying to make themselves acceptable to that higher power. Look, there are not many people in the world who don't believe in any existence outside of what can be seen in the natural realm. Though undoubtedly, atheists and agnostics are growing in number. We all have to acknowledge that. What the world is tired of, though, is hearing that Jesus is the only way. It's kind of like, look, surely we're past that. Just like in the 19th century, Western men and women said, surely we're past the idea of believing that there are miracles, things that happen outside of the realm of our understanding. Nowadays, they're saying, well, okay, I acknowledge the possibility that it happens. I hear about things that I cannot explain. I have seen things that I can't explain. But surely we are past the idea that there's only one way to heaven. You don't believe it's only Jesus, do you? The world is tired of feeling guilty over behavior and over ethics. And our attempts... 
uh, to get the Hunzikers to America. And it's just up in the air. We have jumped through so many hoops and find ourselves right back at the same place. But in our attempts to get the Hunzikers to America, we've been told by a Washington, D.C. area lawyer, uh, area lawyer that there is a growing sentiment of opportunity opposition to orthodox evangelical Christianity and to Christians, not just in America, but all over the world. Now, you may have thought in the past, well, oh, that's, it's not the case that the, the, the rest of the world loves Christianity, but, but they love it here in America. And there are places all over the world where we can, look, it's growing. There is a growing opposition to Christianity. Much of the world is willing to acknowledge God, but to confess Jesus and all that goes with it, well, that's a bit too much. Now, you've heard this. If you've been in Hebrew study for a while, you've heard this over and over. It sets the stage for uh, the, the text that we're going to look at today. The idea that people are opposed to Jesus being the only way to heaven is not a new idea. I mean, men and women to whom the book of Hebrews was written, lived in danger of imminent arrest, immediate bogus trial, and public execution the next day. So it's not surprising that some were thinking about abandoning Christianity and going back to Judaism. But the author sternly warned them that to do so uh, would be to their own peril. And he did that in five separate warning passages in Hebrews, the last of which is in our text today, included in our text today, Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. You know, if you maintain your faith in the face of imminent death, then there's a decent chance that your faith is genuine. I mean, some who heard the word did not intend to abandon God, only Jesus. But the author is saying, but now, wait a minute. If Jesus is God, you can't abandon him without abandoning God. In order to persuade his readers to maintain their faith in Jesus, the author contrasted the law and the gospel and showed how Jesus is a far better word than the law. See if you can catch the contrast in our text. Our text today, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. If you would please stand for the reading of Scripture. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. I'll just tell you now, I'll say it again later. He's talking about when the law was given, how God appeared in all of his glory. And the people were told not even to touch the mountain. But it was a physical, literal mountain. And so the author is saying, you haven't come to this mountain that everybody can see and touch. Although in that case it was advisable not to. But you have come to something far better. So, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg that no further message, messages be spoken, made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. No kidding, folks. It is really going. I guess I could do this. I have a older version of the ESV and sometimes it, it's slightly different so therefore I like to read from the screen but maybe it's better if I just read like this so verse 21 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a better covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Just like shaking a cup, everything that's attached to that cup stays. Everything that's not attached goes. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we have sung the truth of your word this morning. Your glory fills the heavens and the earth. And in our day, we want to think of what a beautiful thing that is. It is also a terrifying thing. Lord, the gospel is a better word than the law. Jesus is a better word than me doing my best. Burn it, our God who is a consuming fire. Burn it in our hearts on this day. It's in his name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. With antipathy towards Christians building worldwide, you may be timid about sharing your faith. Maybe much more so than you were just a few years ago. But to contrast the gospel with the law can be a far more positive experience than you might think. You may be saying, you know, I'm, frankly, I'm just a little bit afraid. I know what people think about holy rollers, about hellfire damnation, preaching, about Jesus being the only way. I'm a little reluctant to share. But you might find it to be far more positive than you expect. Why? Because those who do not know Jesus are most often trying to find a way to get to God. And they use the law in order to help them get to God. But the law rarely satisfies the human heart. In fact, it's frightening when people feel good about their relationship with God based on the law. Because they've become self-righteous. You remember, the Pharisees received some of Jesus' harshest words and they were the ones who said, Lord, I thank Thee that I am not like this sinner over here. I do this, this, and this. 
And Jesus said, you've missed it. Your heart is not right. Your heart is set on yourself, not the law of God. The law of God, in fact, will point us to Jesus. Truly, most people, though, are not happy with their uneasy relationship with God via the law. Over the past few years, I've had the privilege to share the gospel with men and women. And and you know, it just comes naturally for me. Whenever I get the opportunity, I'm sharing the gospel. It's not always easy for me. But it's almost like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I am compelled to do it. I cannot help but share the gospel with people. And, And you would think that some of these people would be utterly Closed and opposed to the gospel. But when the gospel is held forth in all its beauty and contrasted with the law, it can be quite attractive and quite compelling. You know what I've heard over and over? I've never heard it quite like that before. Now, clearly, the Holy Spirit is the one who opens. And I'm not saying anything profound, anything that you wouldn't say. It's just that you have to say it. We're going to spend most of this fall talking about our need and privilege to share the gospel and ways to do that. And how to connect with people, to interact with people. I mean, most people, the problem with sharing the gospel is that most people already have an opinion of Jesus based on what they perceive to be the narrow opinions of his followers, particularly in the cultural arena. Rather than seek to, to, to understand the claim, uh, uh, claims of Christianity, many allow the noise of the day to drown out that nagging emptiness and dissatisfaction in their hearts. And, and, and the often subconscious concern uh, that they may have about giving an account to a holy God at the end of life is sort of put aside. Consequently, it probably doesn't seem like this is adherence to the law is, that's driving them. But it is a law, as we've talked about over and over, of their own making, which may lead them to feel it's best to judge others on the basis of the, what the majority thinks. What does the majority say about culture? What does the majority say about morality? Whatever the, the majority says, that's the direction I'm going to go. Now, think about it. Here's the world saying, what's wrong with you bigoted, narrow-minded people? In response, Christians, having falsely assumed that we used to be in control of the public square, that we used to be the ones who determined the way that society went, Falsely, having falsely assumed that we become defensive and say, we've got to get back in charge of the public square. We've got to elect the right people. We've got to have the best arguments. And so we spend a lot of time saying, all right, but what do you think about this? Huh? It's just law. It's just we're trying to elevate our version of the law above their version of the law. And we fail. We miss the opportunity to share the true beauty of the gospel. And the the word of the gospel is a far better word than the word of the law. I have to have a drink after that. A drink of water. You may need the... No, no, I'm not going to say that. Hebrews 12, 
18 to 24 is considered by many to be the rhetorical peak of this profound sermon. Just imagine that. Think about what a big deal that is. If scholars say, you know, it all finds, it, it all comes together and finds its place at the top of the mountain in this particular text. Just the first part of it, verses 18 through 20, 24. In, in these seven verses, interesting that it's seven verses, the author contrasts the law and the gospel. And he does so by contrasting Mount Sinai representing the law with Mount Zion, which represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mount Zion referring to Jerusalem, the place where God dwells. Mount Sinai where the word was given and all of these frightening things occurred. And even though Mount Sinai is not mentioned by name in Hebrews 12, there's no doubt that the author has Exodus 19 and 20 in mind, where Moses himself trembled before the Lord as the law was given, even though Moses had interacted with God in a very personal way. Unless your mind works a particular way, you would have missed the fact that the author recalls seven terrifying things that were present when the law was established. And he gives seven thrilling truths about the gospel. Seven of the law, seven in the gospel. Don't raise your hand. I just wonder if anybody picked that up this morning. Some of you probably have those kinds of minds that just you're, you're clicking it off and it just all falls into place. Well... The writer, who was highly skilled with rhetoric as well as theology, structured it this way. And a lot of the readers would have gotten it. And seven is a very, it's a number of completion, the number of perfection. And so they're seeing what he's doing here. No wonder, though, when we look at the law and then we look at the gospel, that the gospel is a better word. I hope your Bible is open to Hebrews 12 while we think about the seven marks of the law and seven marks of the gospel. First, let's think about Mount Sinai representing the law. It is, first of all, the mountain that cannot be touched. He said, you have come to a mountain that can be touched. You have not come to the mountain that can be touched. But God said, you better think twice about touching this mountain while I am here in all of my glory, showing you who I am and what I expect of you. Uh, you will be consumed if you touch this. Man or beast will be consumed if they touch this mountain. Just look at the ways that God related to his people through the law. At Mount Sinai, the people saw God's terrifying holiness in a blazing fire. And yet, darkness, gloom, it makes you think of Lord of the Rings. You know, with Frodo and Sam back there in the middle of... No it's just gloom all around. There was a tempest, a storm, and on top of that, a trumpet blast. And you have no idea where it's coming from. And a voice speaking words. The voice was terrifying. And the people begged Moses to tell God... To make it stop. And Moses was trembling himself. He had communicated very directly and very personally with God. And yet he was trembling with fear. Just think about how the believers who heard this first sermon from Hebrews would have received these words. 
William Lane said this, the recital of these terms in measured cadence when the homily was read aloud in the house church would have created a verbal impression of the awesome majesty of God who made his presence known at Sinai. And then Lane says this, ironically though, God remains hidden. All of this, and yet we don't see God. We don't see God truly until Jesus. So Mount Sinai, signifying the terrible majesty of God. We could not sing songs that could do the same thing as this passage does. I mean, if we sang these kinds of songs week in and week out, people would say, I, I, I just don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know. And that's the way the world does with the law. I can't deal with it. I need to domesticate the law. need to make it work for me. So, let's just imagine for just a moment if the world could see this. This presentation of God. Up close and personal. Do you think they would repent? One thing is for sure, they would be afraid of God. They would recognize their helplessness apart from the mediator. That's why they begged Moses. Moses, make the voice stop. Moses was their mediator. He stood between them and God. They said, we can't take it. Please make it stop. The people knew that if God did not stop speaking, it would destroy them. If this was final, God's final word, it would be the final word that they heard. But thank goodness, as we were told in the first few verses of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is God's final word. Not his final act, but it's his final word. Look at the description of God's better word of the gospel represented by Mount Zion. It is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, it is the eschatological kingdom, the end of all things. It is referenced in Hebrews. It's the promise of a better day in heaven when all will be made right. The heavenly Jerusalem. Think about it now. Mount Sinai, you, you could see it, but you were terrified of it. Mount Zion can't be seen fully in the same way. But it's a far better promise. It's filled with innumerable angels in joyful gathering. Reminds you, doesn't it, of the, of the angels praising God at, at Jesus' birth. There was some bad stuff to come, but there was such joy on that occasion. At the incarnation when God became man. At Mount Zion, we find community. It's there that we find the church of the firstborn or Firstborn is the plural of firstborn. It's usually as an adjective. Uh, it, when it's used as a noun, the way the Greek is written, it would be transliterated firstborns, whose names are enrolled or permanently inscribed in heaven. So, you may be the third child in your family, but if all of the children in your family are believers, you're considered, you're all considered to be firstborn in God's eyes. I mean, obviously the author is saying in his treatment of Hebrews that, look, the jury's still out as to whether all of you are indeed fit this description. 
your perseverance will indicate whether or not you're a believer in the end. And look, don't think just because you've walked away for a bit or you've messed up for a bit. Peter, if anybody ought to be out, it ought to be Peter. And yet he's given the leadership of the church the keys to the kingdom in the early days. When the gospel goes to a new people, it comes through Peter. Even though he denied Jesus vehemently with cursing, with swearing. So, the author is saying, though, that their perseverance, how you end your life will indicate whether or not you belong to the church. To be among the firstborn was to be considered worthy of the same privileges as Jesus, who was the ultimate firstborn. Now, to say that Jesus was the firstborn doesn't mean that he was created. It's a position of authority and privilege and responsibility, relationship. The, the firstborn got the double portion of the blessing and he had all kinds of authority given to him. So that's what God is saying about Jesus and saying we get the same privileges. We enjoy the benefits of the firstborn. At Mount Zion, the church encounters God, the judge of all. But now look, we think of Mount Sinai, the law as being the God, the judge of all, being a, oh boy, I don't want to see him. And so we see this verse again, God is the judge of all. And we're thinking, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. But, the, but those who encounter God at Mount Zion find a far different God than who was at Mount Sinai. Why? Because they, those who encounter him at Mount Zion are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. As Peter O'Brien said, there is nothing lacking in their relationship with God. Why? Because of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The one who stood between a righteous God and sinful men and women. He makes us perfect because of his great sacrifice. The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what is that all about? The blood of Abel. You, you remember from Genesis 4 when Cain murdered Abel. And God says to Cain, where is Abel? He says, how do I know? I can't keep up with him. And God says, well, the blood that you spilled is crying out from the ground. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus' blood, on the other hand, cries out for forgiveness. Maybe you've never murdered somebody. But if you have broken God's law, and that's all of us, we've all broken God's law then we stand condemned. And unless something happens, we are going to be judged on the basis of the law. Far better for you to come to Mount Zion at the foot of the cross where Jesus died for you. Acknowledge your sin before a holy God and confess that you believe that Jesus died in your place. That's the gospel. Do not walk away from God's beautiful grace. And do not fail to share God's grace with others. When we were reading uh, the description of Mount Sinai, it, it sounded dark and foreboding. And that's because it was. If you had been at Mount Sinai on that day that God appeared to the Israelites, you would have been likely trying to hide, doing your best to hide. You may have become bitter and angry. 
When there's a harsh word toward you and it doesn't utterly destroy you, over time you become numb and you become bitter and angry. You, you <clears throat> may be bitter that, that God is so frightening and He demands perfection. And in fact, you might consider this a manifestation of a hellfire and damnation kind of God. And you would be right. But you probably wouldn't like it. And you'd find ways to deny what you've seen and heard. We have a far, far better word than the law to present the, to the world. Now look, it's true that you cannot receive the gracious word of the gospel until you have first dealt with the word of the law. That I'm not worthy. No one is worthy. But when we present the law, make sure to present the gospel in the absence of a gracious, gracious presentation of the gospel. All others will see from us is hellfire and damnation. That's what they accuse us of already. What a blessing to show the beauty of Mount Zion to those who only know God through Mount Sinai. What a privilege to share Jesus to those who are in desperate need of God, whether they know it or not. So on the basis of all that we have seen this morning, how can we remove obstacles? You know, we say, look, look, turn from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. And they say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see Mount Zion. All I can see is traces of Mount Sinai in your life and in the things that everyone is saying. How do we remove any obstacles from the view of those who need to see the crosses? Ravi Zacharias would say, take away any obstacles that obscure view of the cross. Three ways. First, allow grace to flow freely in our community. When you live under the law, you tend to be suspicious of others. I mean, look, we all compare ourselves with others, making certain that we're on the right side of the curve with regard to behavior. But God doesn't grade on a curve. Either you're perfect or you're not. And we are only found to be perfect in God's grace to us through Jesus. And don't you know that Jesus had a lot to say about you need to extend grace to others in the same way grace has been extended to you. That's our calling. To pass, the, to allow the grace of God to flow through us. Oh, that we might be. A gracious church. Do your part to allow grace to flow freely in this place. Forgive one another. We are told to restore gently, Galatians 1 says. If someone is found in a fault, remembering that you're only human as well. And you don't want to judge others on the basis of the law any more than you want to be judged on the basis of the law. We can't just let our community do anything we can't just let people do anything they want to do. That's not the point. But the point is to be gracious and kind and forgiving to one another. Let that grace flow freely, not only to one another, but to, but, but to all those who happen on our community or in our sphere of influence. Look, some people, some of you who are here for the first time today, you're going to be out of here quickly. 
If you want to talk to somebody, just stand around. Standing like this would be preferable. We'll know. You know, that's a visitor. We'll find you. We'll talk to you. If you see somebody, a family that you've not seen before, and they're just kind of standing there by themselves, please make yourself known. And let the grace of God flow to all who come into our presence. Second, love so well that our relationship with one another is contagious. It's, it's probably a good thing. It, it is a good thing that the rugged, individualized Christianity in our land is becoming a thing of the past. We need one another. In the past, we were, even though we didn't have control of the public square, even still, we did have a lot to say about the morality of our country. And, and unfortunately, Oftentimes that led us to sort of walk like this. And I want to walk like that. I want to say just as much as anybody, this is the right way. And if you want this country to survive, you better listen to what I and my people are saying. But we're not in that day anymore. We need one another. And when we live in close relationship with one another, it will make a positive difference. Look, the world is a cruel and tricky place for those living at Mount Sinai under the law. You never know when all of a sudden there's going to be a shift in the winds and something that you were saying as loud as you possibly can on any kind of social media that you, that's at your disposal all of a sudden is wrong. And it's changed overnight. And you don't really know which way to go. You never know when you're going to say the wrong thing. Be ostracized by the very ones you're trying to impress. Not influence, impress. Relationship within the church ought to be attractive to the world. And that's why unity that Neil Manning talked about a few weeks ago is so important. And, you know... There were a couple of guys in the New Testament talked about it before Neil got to it. But we all take our cues from here, don't we? That's why Scripture says over and over, unity is important. In fact, we ought to love one another so much that our condition is contagious to many who observe. Not going to be contagious to everybody, but it's going to be contagious to a lot. Last, we, are to, we should engage in such joyful worship that it will attract those in bondage that's why most of our songs are praise God we're not under that bondage we're no longer under law look at what Jesus has done for us look at the freedom we have in Christ when we spend most of our time worrying about the direction of our country our focus is in the wrong place it's on the wrong mountain Brothers and sisters, our citizenship is in the heavenly Jerusalem. And if there was joy to be found in A.D. 64-65 for these believers who faced intense persecution, it ought to be available to us. Ultimately, it comes down to belief. If you believe that the gospel is a better word than the law, you have reason to rejoice. And then you're not so frightened by Jesus' words when he says, Don't fear what those who can only kill the body can do to you. Fear, fear the one 
who can kill both body and destroy the soul in hell. It's not a fearful word if you believe in Jesus. You're saying, absolutely, I take my orders from Him and I find my joy in Him. If you find joy in the world, it's temporary. And something's going to mess it up this afternoon, not tomorrow. This afternoon. Those who are under the law are under bondage. Worship joyfully is those who are free. And this would be a great place to end the sermon, but this is not where the text ends. This word of Mount Zion is a wonderful word. But if it is rejected, the consequences are serious. It's bad enough to reject the law. To hear the gospel, to understand the gospel, to reject it, that's the ultimate insult to God. It is a serious thing to reject the word of grace so freely offered to us. The ground shook at Mount Sinai. One day God is going to shake the heavens and whoever's not attached to Jesus is going to fall out and miss the beautiful blessing and benefit of God's grace and be judged on the basis of the law. You know how... In your family, someone asks a question and everybody looks to one person, whether it's the dad, the mom, even one of the children. What do you want to do? When God speaks to you and is ready to judge you, you want Jesus right there and you're going to be going like this. Uh, he'll answer that question. And when Jesus says, this one was born in Zion. This one was born in Zion. Nothing better. So be judged on the basis of Jesus' death and sacrifice, not on the basis of the law. You've heard the term, you're playing with fire. Look, whether you want to acknowledge God or not, if you are breathing according to Scripture, you are playing with fire. A consuming fire. In fact, the specific point in Hebrews is that if you're thinking about walking away from Jesus, you are danger in danger of being confronted with the holy nature of God as one who is unforgiven and unprepared for eternity. But I've been, in the, I've been on the worship team. Man, I taught Sunday school. I did this. If you're thinking about walking away from God, and you notice earlier I said that these names, it doesn't say it exactly like this, but this is what everybody understands. The names in heaven are permanently inscribed. One of the ways that God helps us to persevere is to say, don't walk away. You're endangering your soul. Also, you can lose your salvation. That's not what I said. That's not what God said. We're asking questions that the Bible doesn't ask. God simply says, one of the ways that I'm going to help you persevere is to say, don't think about walking Away. Don't be as one unforgiven and unprepared for eternity. Believe the good word of the gospel. Believe 
Jesus, there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. What are you supposed to do with that? Just believe. Believe the word of the gospel. In the face of anything and everything that may be directed your way. In the face of persecution, in the face of rejection by the ones that you love, in the face of illness that caught you utterly off guard. No matter what, believe the good word of the gospel. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep that to gain that which he cannot lose. Lord, we recognize that we are a people about ourselves, about the law, but a law that we can fashion. When we see you in all of your terror, that's when we are driven to the gospel. Allow these beautiful words of the gospel to go deep in our hearts. And give us hearts that are so full of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ that it just overflows from us. That others see and find something attractive. Not that they see, Lord, grimmest faces and, and crossed arms, but that they see the open arms of Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are burdened, heavy, laden. Find your rest in me. Lord, may we rest in you May it be communicated to the world. Jesus loves you. Believe him. Amen. Hear these words from Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And all God's people said,